0: And full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Kaya, and Sam, as usual, talking about the news that you might not have heard in the past week, but that's important. And then I sit down with Elise Buick to talk about the United Way of L.A. and the work that's happening to fight homelessness and the work of the pandemic to make sure that people have what they need. Now, the advice that I have for you this week is about putting a stake in the ground. We have to make sure that we move beyond the conversation and the theory and that we actually put a stake in the ground. That if we are ever going to get the progress that our lives deserve, it means that we will have to make decisions about how to act, where to act, what the biggest levers are. And that means that when you put a stake in the ground, that people might criticize it. That means that some people might not like it. But the only way we'll move forward is if people actually put two feet down and say, this is what I believe. This is what I think we should do. And this is how I think we actually get to the big goal that we want to get to. That it's not enough just to say, here is the goal. We have to have a conversation about how we get there. And that means that you put a stake in the ground, that you take risks. And part of taking risks means that you won't always get it right or that people might not love it the first time or the second time, but we'll never win otherwise. Let's do it.
1: Hello there. Here we are again. Pod Save the People. Thank you for joining us. I'm Diara Ballinger. At Diara Ballinger on Instagram and Twitter.
2: And I'm Samson Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter.
3: I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter.
0: And I'm Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter.
1: I'm trying to have as much energy as I can, but obviously it's been a, a long week, particularly given that we lost our beloved, our hero, our John Lewis. So, you know, there is great sadness, but I think also great legacy for us to act upon. And so... You know, we just want to spend a couple moments just talking about how John Lewis paved the way for us, for the four of us in so many ways, but also um, around the world in terms of civil rights and activism and um, fighting for voting rights. My thoughts always go to the 2016 election, which we really saw what happens when our voting rights are gutted, and so much of what John Lewis fought for was actually eroded. And that's currently what voting rights looks like in this country. So I think it's now more than ever that we need to be as active and as as forceful, but also in the legacy of John Lewis, be as loving and as kind as we can for a continued fight to ensure that there's justice and, and equity and equality in this country.
0: You know, the last time that I saw uh, John Lewis, uh, we were in a meeting at the White House. It was the first ever intergenerational meeting of civil rights leaders. Uh, CT Vivian was also in that meeting, and I'll never, and we lost both of them in the same sort of 24 hours. I'll never forget CT because CT, he was like both shocked and proud of Obama. He was just like, I just, he, he, you know, even just remembering it, he was like, I never imagined that I'd be in the Roosevelt room meeting with a black president in a room full of black civil rights leaders across generations. And he, He was like, we fought so hard and worked so much to get some wins on the board. And he was like to Obama, I know that this is not enough. I know that this is not the end all be all, but this is such an incredible win that I never thought I'd be alive to see. Uh, And John Lewis also in that meeting sort of helped frame how powerful the moment was that we were in, but also this idea that part of our work is to always protect everyone, that they got the Voting Rights Act, but part of it is like every generation has to protect the wins that the earlier generations got, and that we can never take those for granted. So I know there were a lot of people who were like, "The Voting Rights Act is the Voting Rights Act. Like, of course it's gonna stay. Like, how could you repeal the Voting Rights Act, or how could you weaken it?" Uh, and then you look up, and it happened. It happened in his lifetime. He both saw it uh, begin, and then saw it get weakened in an incredible way. So. I'll just never forget that meeting. It was an important meeting in my life and one that continues to shape the way I think about what it means to fight from the outside and also fight on the inside.
3: I'll share my John Lewis story. Uh, When I was the chancellor of D.C. Public Schools, we decided to adopt March, his graphic novel, as part of our curriculum. And we went to see him, uh, to share that with him, and he offered to come to our Teachers' Professional Development uh, session so that he could share with them directly about March. And he did, which was incredibly generous of him. But we, while we were in his office, he spent a lot of time with us just talking. My chief academic officer and I just went to share that with him. And he spent so much time just telling us stories and sharing his experiences. Um, and we talked quite a bit about his chickens. If you've ever been in his office, there are lots of pictures of chickens all around. And the story is that When he was young, he was responsible for taking care of the family's chickens, feeding them and checking on them. And he was an aspiring preacher when he was a little boy. And so he would go out and he would preach to the chickens. And that is how he overcame some speech issues and really developed his oratorical skills, preaching to the chickens. And so I always think about that when I think about John Lewis and I think about how much time he spent. He was super busy but didn't think that it was too much to hang out with some educators and just uh, share his stories. And so I am appreciative to have had that opportunity as well as appreciative for all of the work he did for all of us in this country.
2: You know, I uh, I never got the chance to meet John Lewis, but um, I continue to be in awe of his sacrifice, the work that he put in to push this country to be a better place, and also just grounding the critical uh, importance of pushing back against police violence as one of the core issues that he championed, that he pushed back against, that he put his body on the line in the face of, and just learning more about his uh, role, for example, in the March on Washington when he was only 23 years old, giving this massive, massive massive speech in in front of so many people and learning some of the backstory about some of the politics behind that speech and how there were lines in the speech that he wanted to speak on that got cut, um, focused on police violence, uh, focused on uh, the Civil Rights Act not doing enough to address police violence. And, you know, fast forward to today and so many of those issues remain. So many of the videos that we see on on the timeline today are images of protesters getting beaten by the police in cities across the country um, and how much work we still need to do just as we fight to reinforce and to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act that he fought so hard for and that Republicans have gutted, the Supreme Court has gutted. And there's a bill sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now um, that would do that work, that would reauthorize the Voting Rights Act that was passed by the House um, by John Lewis. And I think it's so important that we push to reinforce um, what has been repealed, um, that folks work so hard for, just as we also fight um, to complete and continue to make progress towards addressing some of the other issues that have continued that have never been fully addressed through comprehensive federal legislation like the issue of police violence um, and so many other things that continue to be fundamental challenges and problems today
1: you know, use this week ahead to dig in a little bit more on John Lewis if you don't know of him. Um, And even for those of you that do, there's always more to learn. So to Kaya's point, his book March, check that out. There's also a documentary right now produced by Magnolia and participant and directed by the amazing Don Porter. Um, That's a documentary about John Lewis's life and work. Um, Also, learn what's happened since the Shelby case in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act, and it's a reason why 27 states in this country have put in place legislation that closes polling locations, requires voter ID laws, and purging voter rolls, essentially making it more difficult for people to vote.
0: The only thing I'll add is by the time that you are hearing this podcast, by virtue of Georgia law, they will have already had to appoint a successor to John Lewis, and that is sort of like a you know, to be interesting to see who replaces him in the Congress and what that looks like moving forward, uh, how that process works out. You know, I know that there have been calls for that person to resign, triggering a special election, you know, but by the time this podcast comes out, we will all know more.
2: So my news is about Berkeley, California, where the city council just approved legislation uh, that will create a plan for removing the police from traffic enforcement and creating a new unit uh, under the Department of Transportation that would be unarmed civil servants who would be doing traffic enforcement in the city instead. Now this is important for a number of reasons. It's also interesting because of how the idea originated. So the idea originated in a series of tweets on Twitter Uh, by Daryl Owens, who is an organizer with East Bay for Everyone uh, in the East Bay area in California. And he tweeted some data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics public contact survey, uh, which measures the degree of public contact that the police have each year. And in their most recent report, which is... 2015 data, because the Bureau of Justice Statistics doesn't release a whole lot of data on the police very often, Um, but in their most recent report, Contacts Between Police and the Public 2015, uh, what that data shows is that about 30 million people a year experience some type of police-initiated contact, meaning they're stopped by the police, Uh, they weren't the ones who called the police, the police stopped them uh, and initiated the encounter. And of that 30 million or so, public contacts that were police initiated 24 million of those are traffic stops uh, both the driver and passengers in the in the car and so this is fascinating because what it shows is that the vast majority of police initiated encounters happen over the course of traffic enforcement. And so by removing an armed police officer from having the responsibility to respond uh, and enforce traffic laws, and creating a new unit that does that instead, you can actually substantially reduce the overall amount of police contact in a given community. And so that tweet from Darrell Owens reached the city council in Berkeley. Uh, They drafted up legislation and now it's been approved. Uh, removing the police from traffic enforcement. Uh, In addition, they also cut the police budget by 12% recently in Berkeley and have proposed a plan that would cut it by 50%. So uh, things are moving pretty rapidly in Berkeley. It is incredible to see. Again, these are plans. They have yet to be implemented. Uh, And so you've got to keep the pressure on, uh, as well as pushing other cities to begin continuing to shrink the role of the police, create alternatives, and shift those resources from the police to community-based alternatives as well.
0: So this will be important as we go in the next year. Remember that what the council actually voted on, right, was the establishment of a commission and a process to go through a year-long review about how to actually make this happen. So that'll be, you know, most of the biggest changes, you know, Minneapolis, also a year-long commission. So it'll be important that we all maintain vigilance in watching this process as the uh, news shifts, as this is not the biggest story, as the protests get moved to the side for other news stories that are already happening, like COVID, right? So if uh, the police aren't the main responders, but there's another traffic department that has similar powers, like not necessarily a win. So it'll be important that people monitor this, And make sure that the implementation actually meets the needs. I will say that there is already fear-mongering happening that I've seen in some of the articles where people are like, traffic stops are really dangerous for the police, and this could be dangerous to community as if this is going to lead to some wild attack on police officers, and that is just not the case. So there is a study that came out of the University of Arkansas at the end of last year that showed uh, that we over-exaggerate the danger of police stops with regard to police themselves. So I don't want people to succumb to fear-mongering about this. I do want us to be vigilant about the actual implementation meeting the demand in this moment, because we've seen time and time again that people come out with a big splash. And then you, when you read the what, it's like not as big as what the splash was.
1: Y'all, this is why we elect folks into office is to problem solve. So they're not supposed to just sit there you know, and go forward with business as usual. And so I think it's up to us, one, to hold city officials, particularly like your city council folks, know who those people are. They couldn't like to Sam's point, they control your city's budget. Right. So some of these things we can legislate, like, you know, because when I read this, my mind goes to, but I don't want people speeding down the street. Well, you know what, they can put speed bumps on the street. And who would do that? The city council. So I think part of it is, we all have to like activate ourselves to know exactly what we could get or what we should get when we elect these folks and then hold them accountable. We're as much a part of the problem solving as the elected officials. So let's all do a little bit more, get a little bit more educated on what our government, particularly our local government actually does so that we can know what that looks like, but also be a part of the conversation to how that shows up in our individual communities.
3: I think this is going to be one to watch. I think what happens is one municipality goes this way, and then I think what will happen is you'll see other municipalities trying to do this. And I think it's an important experiment given the numbers that you folks cited about how many traffic stops initiate contact with the police. And so my hope is that, you know, even if the first municipality or the second municipality doesn't get it right, that people will continue to tinker with this and see if we can't get to really decreasing the number of traffic stops to decrease the amount of police interaction with black people. This is important to me, I think.
1: Okay, my news this week, y'all, is uh, from CNN. My girl, I don't know her, but I'm gonna act like I do. My girl, Candace Valenzuela will be, I'm just gonna put it in the universe, will be the first Afro-Latina in Congress. And let me get more specific, cause she's really repping me. The first Black Blacksican, Blacksicana in Congress. <laughs> so I'm so excited. I went to Candace's website and made a little donation. I'm not telling y'all to do it, but I'm encouraging it. I'm so excited about her candidacy on all the issues. She's right where she needs to be, police accountability, income equality. She was endorsed by Congressman John Lewis. I I bring her up, I bring her to the pod just because I think it's really important that we are paying attention to these standouts across the country because if you look at the numbers in Congress in terms of folks of color, we're doing a lot better compared to 1965. Um, But in terms of actually looking at representation per the population, we're still not doing that great. So I think right now we're at like 52 members of Congress that are black and then 38 for Latinos. The other interesting thing that I'm going to start to address and have conversations with this week is that, evidently, if you are Afro-Latino, you can either be in the Black Caucus or the Hispanic Caucus. Based on congressional rules, you can't be in both. So we actually have a member in Congress. He identifies as Latino, but Latino with African descent. But he wouldn't be able to identify as both Black and Latino in the United States Congress. So that's an issue that I'll be tackling personally. Um, in, in the in the weeks and months to come, but I thought that was interesting for folks to know. Um, but anyway, I just I wanted to bring up Candace. She's running against a woman who's popular in that part of Texas. So they're in Irving, Texas, which is like the s- suburbs outside of Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, but her opponent is um, endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, so it's going to be important for us to support Candace and all the other bright and exciting congressional candidates that are standouts across the country?
0: Um, th- this made me think about the conversations that we need to be having about this election. You know, you look at the latest poll numbers and 50% of white people still support Donald Trump, that that is wild, uh, that his base will certainly vote, and that this will be an unprecedented election in so many ways. So when you when, when you highlight this candidate for us, doctor I'm thinking about all the people, especially young people who probably never mailed anything I'm thinking about the people who have never seen a ballot that wasn't in a voting booth. Uh, I'm thinking about the older people who definitely wanna vote, are nervous about COVID, so trying to figure out like, can you do it over the phone? Do you only do it on the internet? If you don't have the internet, how do you do it in some way? Just the logistical challenges that we're gonna face in making sure that our side is able to vote, I think will be massive in a way that the voting groups, and you know, I am on the board of Rock the Vote. I know that Rock the Vote is organizing around this. I know that Fair Fight, I know that there are a lot of groups across the country doing really incredible work around this. Uh, But I think that I'm not sure that we have all reckoned with how unprecedented it'll be to just like go over the hump. So when I see 50% of white people still support Donald Trump, it's like he won't need a million, 10 million, 30 million more votes than Biden to take it home again, right? And we learned that the last election. So even though the polling looks like Biden's ahead, we just cannot let up. And I worry that people like might think that we might have it in the bag. And we might have had it in the bag if not for COVID. But I think that there will be people who get nervous on Election Day, especially in those places where voter suppression is really deep. So when you close all the polling places by five and people feel like he already won the primary and Biden has it in the bag and they just are not going to stand outside again – then what do we have? And it does not look like COVID is gonna let up before election day.
2: So Diara, this uh, made me think a lot about the demographics of Congress and how under the existing two-party system, we essentially have one party that is becoming more representative of this country, uh, that is approximating, although still not there yet, uh, the demographics of the nation overall. And then the other party is essentially you know, between 80 to 90 percent white men. Um, and so you have one party that is exclusively essentially for white men and one party that re- reflects the country as a whole um, or just getting there soon hopefully we will get there and in the end what that means is you have a system where you're negotiating between white men and sort of an average demographic breakdown of the country uh, and you end up with a result that tends to skew heavily towards white men um, and how that sort of counterbalance doesn't really work well for us how do you counterbalance a political system or a party like the Republican Party where everybody is essentially a white man? What level of diversity and representation and inclusion within the Democratic Party would be necessary to really have a representative political conversation and political system? Um, And I think we still have a a long ways to go before we can get there. We would need to dramatically increase representation, not only in terms of race and gender, but also by age. Um, And I think you know, just over the past... You know, five or six years, we've seen an influx of uh, members of Congress who are younger, who in many cases are millennials, who are approaching these issues just differently, um, where I feel more represented, and I think a lot of younger people feel more represented than sort of the previous cohorts of Congress. So I, th- I like the, the trajectory. It's cool to see that beginning to happen, um, but I'm just reminded when looking at the numbers that how much further we really have to go um, to truly be represented in, at the federal level, let alone you know at the state and local level, which has many of the same issues.
3: I thought it was really interesting to think about having the first Afro-Latina member of Congress. And at the same time, I wondered what that means for her level of support amongst Latinos generally given the broad diversity and some of the history around colorism in the Latino community. I think it's bold. I mean, she is an Afro-Latino, but I think that it's bold to proclaim that when there are a lot of Latinos who don't um, recognize the or don't honor the African ancestry within the Latino community. And so I am interested in um, seeing, I think we're seeing more and more Afro-Latino candidates come forward. And I think it could be a galvanizing moment or it could be a, I guess, a further divisive moment for the Latino community. But I think it's an opportunity to continue to have the tough conversation around colorism within the Latino community.
1: And Kai, I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight Candace, just because growing up as black and Mexican, I oftentimes had to choose whether I was black or Mexican. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is this growing movement, particularly with Afro-Latinos, kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know, we are both. And it doesn't mean that we're less of one than the other, mm-hmm. but it means that this is who we are, this is our full authentic self, and that's how we're going to show up. And we're going to have, you know, two feet in each community, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but we're going to uphold the values of both communities, the priorities, the agendas of both communities. And, you know, most oftentimes it's the same agenda and the same priorities and the same values. So I think that's what's particularly exciting about um about Candace and so many others about you know so many Afro-Latinos that are now leaders in the Black Lives Matter movement or leading in you know the Dreamers or immigration movement. So I think ultimately what I see happening and what I'm hopeful about is just kind of re- a return to the coalition building from the 1970s that was happening between the Black Panthers and the Brown Berets and the you know Young Lords. Like I just see a, us all kind of coming back together. Um, And there's so much history of that. And I'm excited about that. And that's why I'm also excited to figure out what's going on with this, you can only be in one caucus situation. That sounds wild to me. So
3: my news comes from CNN, where Asheville, North Carolina voted unanimously to approve a reparations resolution for black residents. Yay, right? Sort of. Um, So 83% of the folks in Asheville are white, 12% are Black. The city council has apologized for the role that it played in slavery and for implementing racist policies. But they are not giving 40 acres and a mule. They are not giving cash payments to Black people. Uh, They are giving, and I, I want you to see my air quotes, investments in areas where Black residents face disparities. They have, you know, taken a bold step in saying reparations are important and we're gonna figure it out. Um, But they are calling for the development of policies and programs that will establish the creation of generational wealth and address reparations that are due in the black community without actually specifying anything. So it doesn't specify how we're gonna create generational wealth or how reparations could be achieved. And the mayor is taking this on and saying that this is not for the faint of heart. On the one hand, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I think these are the beginnings. We're having more conversations about reparations in more serious ways than we have before. And um, there are other cities who are considering reparations. So the city of Seattle, Washington is considering a reparations plan, um, Providence, Rhode Island, and the state of California. But um, as I was sort of sad about Asheville not going a little further, um, later on in the week, I learned from ABC News that Evanston, Illinois has actually gone further than anybody so far in adopting a resolution for reparations as part of their city budget. In fact, they're the first municipality to commit Um, public dollars to reparations. And they have taken a pretty innovative approach to it. They are funding reparations through their tax revenue from legalized marijuana sales. And their rationale is that 70% of the arrests in Evanston for marijuana are Black people, when black people only represent 17% of the population. So this is clearly an over-policing situation. And so they felt like, okay, if black people were disproportionately policed around marijuana, then we should take the revenue now that marijuana is legalized and use it for specific things. And they are are actually anticipating about $10 million over 10 years towards housing assistance and towards economic development benefits, business development and entrepreneurship. They are putting $25,000 up for black people to purchase a home. Uh, They are doing grants for, as I said, business development and entrepreneurship And there are 13,400 black people in Evanston who stand to actually get some cash payments to buy houses and to create businesses. And those are indeed the things that uh, help to generate generational wealth. And so while Asheville took me up and then brought me down a little bit, Evanston, Illinois came out fighting. And I think we're going to continue to see
2: municipalities take this on and go further and further this was cool at first to read the article and to see the headline and I got all excited. And then, you know, I read through what Asheville was doing and there were a couple of signals that just didn't make me feel very confident uh, that they put out. So, you know, first and foremost, they were very clear that the resolution that they adopted did not mandate any direct cash payments to descendants of anybody uh, who was enslaved. And so, you know, I think when we talk about reparations, Obviously there's a particular legacy, a particular history uh, to that term, to what that means, to the scale at which that would have to be at if it was serious about making amends for and reckoning with the history and the legacy and the present reality of institutional racism going all the way back to slavery. And I don't think that what Asheville put out really meets that bar yet. Obviously, there's a process that they initiated, going back to what, what you said, Darae, about creating a commission and talking about what this should look like. And obviously, there should be done in a deliberate way and a thoughtful way, um, but it, didn't inspire confidence that they immediately felt the need to say, well, we're not talking about cash, direct cash payments right now, we're talking about generalized investment in black communities, when that has been something that a number of cities have said that they were doing through a variety of programs, local, state, and federal, um, going back a long time, and have never really reached the scale and the boldness that they would need to really grapple with and close the inequities uh, around race in this country.
0: The same you remember these calls. We had a a lot of calls not too long ago around reparations and what it would look like in practice and I learned a couple things. One is that I learned that the people who study this most deeply study the need for reparations. There's actually not a lot of studies out there about like what to do. Like, what could it be? So there's some direct cash assistance stuff that's happening, mostly under the sort of framework of universal basic income, but we know that like Stockton and there's a host of cities that just joined like um, Jackson, Mississippi. There's like a host of cities that just said they're going to start doing direct cash assistance and I hope that the data from that is really useful. But there's not like a field of research out there about like what the best practices might be. So I'm hopeful that like, as we have these conversations our operations that we try things like free childcare, right? That we try... Uh, giving food to people and yeah I don't know that we try a range of things in addition to cash assistance that will make up for or atone for or remedy some of the structural disadvantages so that's one. The second thing though is that we got to read beyond the headlines and I too like you Sam and like you Kaya was let up and then let down. I read I'm like okay reparations and then I read and I'm like this is a resolution to study and no commitment really sort of outside of that And this was a really good reminder for me about the way the media sort of moves. And if you aren't really consuming in a way that allows you to be critical, which is not even your fault sometimes, because everybody reported this, like the way it was reported, it was like, people are getting checks. And when you read it, you're like, they expressly are not getting checks. Like that is like, if you learned anything from it, it was like, they are not getting checks. You don't know what they're getting, but they're not getting checks. Uh, So I thought that was really interesting. And the third thing uh, is that there have been calls for the uber wealthy the billionaires, to sort of do reparations work. And what I learned when we were doing this project we were working on a while ago is that most of the scholars sort of think that the private money is interesting and can definitely help do good, but that the government caused the problem and the government should actually be the body that pays for it. So that like, while private money is interesting, that the true cost of reparations is more than any billionaire has, and that we shouldn't limit our understanding of what is necessary uh, because we are attaching it to a single person or a single couple of people. So if we can find a trillion dollars for COVID, then we can actually pony up the resources uh, to do what's right for black people in a moment like this.
1: Yes, do I want cash money? Obviously. But what I think I want more is kind of like a national reckoning around the slave trade and how insidious racism still is in this country and how systemic it is in our institutions. And so I think while yes, there needs to be a discussion and and study and there needs to be reparations, I think there also just needs to be sort of something similar to what happened in South Africa after apartheid in terms of truth and reconciliation. And obviously that's not a perfect model, but I think one of the goals is, is that you actually want to dismantle racism so that it doesn't continue. Because if we do not, we're gonna have to continue giving people reparations for generations and generations to come. While we might want that too, I think a way to really have a total balance around this is a component of this that is education, that is discourse, that is people grappling with the truth of this country yeah, I, mean, I, I just I just feel like the, this this conversation around reparations needs to be a larger conversation around dismantling racism in this country.
3: So the media clearly took this headline in a particular direction, and like you, it took me up and then brought me down. But it also then made me look for. Where is there a place that has actually done reparations with cash money to black people? And that's what took me to Evanston. You know, even the Evanston stuff, while it is cash, it's not a ton of cash. And to Sam's point about, you know, what is bold enough? What would actually atone for? I wonder if any reparations plan will ever be bold enough to truly atone for what we have suffered here in these United States of America um, at the hands of this country being built uh, on slave labor.
0: Now, my news, uh, this was fascinating to me, and I and I brought it here because I am interested in what you have to say about it. So I was going through the news, getting ready, and there's this Washington Post article that is titled Anti-Vaccination Leaders Fuel Black Mistrust of Medical Establishment as COVID-19 Kills People of Color. So there were a lot of thoughts that came in mind. First of all, I didn't know RFK Jr. was one of the leading anti-vaxxers. Uh, that was new to me. Uh, but there are a host of people, and this article focuses mostly on Denver, there are a host of people who are using the Tuskegee experiment and the horrific sort of torture that happened using black bodies as guinea pigs around not giving treatment for syphilis uh, and intentionally making sure that people experience harm so they could be studied, uh, using that as a way to tell people that they don't need a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes out. And it's interesting is that there's a Washington Post poll that found that 63% of black adults said they were likely to get the coronavirus vaccine compare with 70% of whites and 78% of Hispanics Uh, only 32% of black adults say they would definitely get the vaccine compared with 45% of whites and Hispanics but what it continues, what the article does a really good job of is painting these conversations that the anti-vax community is explicitly having in black communities to push the idea that the vaccines will disproportionately hurt black communities to fight against vaccination legislation uh, and sort of exploiting what happened in Tuskegee to say that in this public health moment uh, that Black people shouldn't take advantage of it. Now, let me be the first one to say that, like, do I trust the government to do this well? No. And do I trust Trump's government to do it well? Absolutely not. I also know that if we see Black people dying at disproportionate rates right now with little access to healthcare uh, and a, a, a shoddy system, that if this just continues and everybody is vaccinated but Black people, I can only imagine the havoc that will be unleashed in our community. So I want us to have more conversations now about this vaccine so that we're not cramming them into the five days when it gets released. And I haven't heard a lot about this. Uh, That's why when I found this article, I was like, I got to bring it here because uh, I want to hear a conversation about it.
2: Wow, so this is really complicated, right? This is, first of all, given the obscene way in which the government has responded or or lack thereof when thinking about a response to COVID in the United States, um, I don't have much faith in the government to do anything, uh, first of all. Um, I do know that if South Korea develops an incredible vaccine, I will be taking it. Um, In fact, if anybody basically develops a vaccine other than the Trump administration, I think it is good. Um, I do worry about, you know, the fact that the Trump administration, uh, we didn't even talk about this as a matter of news, but the Trump administration uh, recently removed the data that was going to the CDC and said instead the data should just go directly um, to the Trump administration. And they were going to put out their own numbers, which we already know are going to be a disaster in ways that when Florida tried this, they undercounted COVID cases a lot So I don't have a lot of faith in the Trump administration, to produce anything, let alone a vaccine uh, sort of on the fly with no resources and probably no expertise anymore. At the same time, I do know that it is going to be really, really important that when a vaccine is developed, most likely outside of the United States, that that becomes something uh, that is used widely and that we are not avoiding or misinformation keeping us from accessing that vaccine and frankly, structural racism keeping us from accessing that vaccine, looking at the disparities in health care access and uh, the quality of health care that's actually provided to you if you are black. Um, So I think there will be a range of different structural, systemic and misinformation challenges to accessing a vaccine around this when one is developed. Um, I also worry about the trials. um, And, you know, if, as we talked about previously, there aren't black people being included in those vaccine trials, how will that vaccine affect us? And how can we be sure that that will have the same benefit for us um, as for other people? I think there are a lot of questions around that. There are legitimate questions, but at the same time, are not a reason um, for us to refuse to, Or not be able to inoculate ourselves from a plague um, that is ongoing, that doesn't look like it is getting any better in many places. Um, And I think it's also important just to call out that cases are rising all across sort of the South um, and the Sun Belt and that is where the majority of black people live in the United States, Um, and we are talking about states that are governed by Republicans, governed by white men, um, who were elected by white voters, who have refused to protect black communities from COVID, um, and have allowed for this to become a pandemic at at higher rates in black communities than in other communities, um, not only in the South, but all across the country. So I think there's a a broader conversation about how race is operating at every level of the pandemic, both in the government's response, also the ways in which a vaccine, if one is produced, might benefit or not benefit us, as well as whether we'll be able to access one. So I just want to call all those things out. And it is complicated to navigate that. At the same time, I think uh, my recommendation would be to get yourself inoculated from a plague um, and to uh, trust the, the actual scientists and not the Trump administration.
3: Sam's comments actually make me think about the governor of Georgia suing the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, for mandating mask wearing and not suing a number of other mayors in Georgia who have mandated the same thing. Sam is absolutely right. Republican governors in states that have large populations with Black people are making decisions that are imperiling Black people's lives. And I think this is a place where we have to rely on our community to educate our people. We can't wait for the experts, in part because of whatever distrust warranted or not warranted, but we have community practitioners. Um, what we see, what I saw when you know, through schools and, and through lots of other community programs is People trust the people in their community. So when there's community health care, when there are doctors who live in your community, when they are at the health clinics that you go to, those people are oftentimes most effective. When there are um, social workers and people who are in your community, you tend to listen to them. And I think that this is a place where, you know, the black grapevine works. And for good or for bad, and I think this is going to be a place where churches become important in terms of carrying this message of getting vaccinated once we determine that there is a vaccine where uh, fraternities and sororities can put out the word. We have to rely on our own civic institutions, on our own faith-based institutions, on our own people getting the word out, because there's so much misinformation in the press that we're going to have to make this a ground game if we are going to save people uh, by making sure that they get vaccinated.
1: Kai, I completely I, I agree with everything that's said. And I think You know, one of the people who I've relied on for a lot of um, counsel around COVID is uh, Dr. Eric Goosby, who's wonderful, who was currently the UN special envoy for tuberculosis. Dr. Goosby's a black man, y'all, he's wonderful. Um, So I think again, to the folks in our community, the folks that have been working on infectious diseases for a very long time, like we are a part of that community. Um, So let's rely on those voices. Um, And I think this is, listen, this is, it's also something we should be paying attention to because now it seems that the health of black folks and folks of color is now, you know, the center of conversation. And when it comes to diabetes and high blood pressure, and then all of the infectious diseases that have come before it, whether it's tuberculosis or chickenpox, like these are all things that our communities have been infected by exponentially. So I think we need to, yes, we're not, we're paying attention now, but we need to continue to pay attention. We need to highlight and support and amplify those voices that are speaking truth to science and giving us advice and, and and vehicles in terms of how we protect ourselves. Got
0: it. Uh, The last thing I'll say is that when we look at COVID, there is June, 2020 data that shows that black people are being hospitalized at, at higher rates than other racial and ethnic groups across the country. And It's one of those things that I remember when COVID first hit, one of my friends, he fainted in his kitchen, came to enough to call 911, and he probably had to stay in the hospital for five days. And I remember tweeting about it, and people were being like, you're dramatic. You don't really know somebody who had COVID. Then I got COVID. And then the COVID truthers came out too. He just tweeted it. for. I'm like, I can't smell or taste. It's been five weeks I can't smell and taste. I still, you know, the doctors do not know if I will ever get my smell and taste back at 100% to this day, right? And I'm one of the lucky people who did not get any symptoms besides the loss of smell and taste. I've been tested five times now. I don't have COVID anymore, but it's been a long road. And like... It's wild because, you know, the last couple of episodes we talked about school and there really are no perfect solutions. But what we do know, and Sam, you talking about the Sunbelt and, you know, the South, it's like the sheer amount of people who have already died and it has just sort of been a blip on the radar is just wild. I mean, so many people have died and it just, it, that isn't even like the biggest story anymore. It's just like a tally mark. And I think the history will remember this moment, both as a moment of people uprising, and a moment where the loss was so immense that we didn't even have language for it. Don't go anywhere. More people the people's coming. H-E-L-P slash people. And now, Annetta, tell us what's on your mind. Hey,
5: everybody. What's up? It's Netta. And thanks for tuning back in. You know, this week, July 17th, um, that's usually a very special day for me. It's my grandmother's birthday. And she's absolutely one of my favorite people on the planet. <laughs> uh, probably the three seconds of patience that I do have, I would say absolutely come from her. (laughs) She's one of the most patient women I have ever, ever encountered, Um, especially with me as her first grandchild. I can only imagine how this has gone (laughs) for her. So happy birthday, Grandma, and I wish I was home with you. Love you. Miss you. This Sunday was also the day we lost two giants, the Reverend C.T. Vivian and Congressman John Robert Lewis. Reverend C.T. Vivian was a foot soldier in the civil rights movement. Vivian kept his work rooted in the field and organizing sit-ins and marches and other forms of civil disobedience with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference alongside John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. Could you imagine if John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. were just your regular ass homeboys? Like, these are the people you're doing the work with. These are the people you are having your principled arguments with. These are the people you get to debate strategies with. And you all are just people. Like, did that register to them? Like, we're like 18, 19, 20, 21, 25. Do you recognize you've linked up with people who are put in your path to change the course of history? I don't know. That just seems like such a gigantic idea. I don't think my mind would be able to understand or fathom it. And I wonder how how did that land for them? And while in recent years, as my own public work put me in conversation with a civil rights hero such as Congressman John Lewis, to even be able to weigh in on something that he was involved in, whether it aligned with my own personal politics or not, was truly an honor. I hope the ancestors gave them both the most loving welcome home. There are daily examples of police being unable or unwilling to police themselves, and we were given an especially violent reminder of that last week. Last week, during the Black and Indigenous Solidarity Rally, Miracle Boyd, an 18-year-old youth leader with Good Kids Mad City, had several teeth knocked out after being sucker punched by a Chicago police officer. Her infraction? Filming police officers tear gassing, pepper spraying, and arresting protesters. To date, the officer's name hasn't been released. And as I've said here before, every incident of police violence committed against Black women and girls hits home. Because I see so much of myself in them, I could be them. My 20-year-old sister could be them. My friends could be them. My grandmother. Chicago is a reminder of the hill that we still have to climb. Whether it's 8 Can't Wait, full-on police abolition, or somewhere in between, we have a lot of work to do. We live in a nation outfitted with and deeply invested in maintaining white supremacy. This current nationwide movement for police accountability is like pulling a loose thread from a tattered sweater. If you pull the thread, the entire piece falls apart. Yes, we need police accountability. We also need a societal overhaul. Defunding or abolishing police only to invest the money in other harmful structures just reshuffles the chair of the white supremacy Titanic. And the reality is, as much as public education and mental health services are starved for resources due to bloated police budgets, those institutions are no less anti-Black and racist as law enforcement. That was fully on display this week in a new report from ProPublica, published in collaboration with Detroit Free Press and Bridge Magazine. A 15-year-old girl named Grace in Michigan was incarcerated during the coronavirus pandemic after a judge ruled that not completing her schoolwork violated her probation. It just doesn't make any sense, said her mother. Instead of knowing and giving this child the resources she needed to best manage online learning during the pandemic, her school, law enforcement, and the legal system punished her. Judge Mary Ellen Brennan, presiding judge of Oakland County Family Court Division, found the child guilty on failure to submit to any schoolwork and getting up for school and also called Grace a threat to the community, citing her previous assault and theft charges. Is Grace a threat to the community or is she simply experiencing this pandemic and an already weak public education infrastructure crumbling around her? The expectation that Black girls are made to live up to, to outperform even during the most extraordinary of circumstances, is exhausting. This is an example of how insidious systematic racism and lack of empathy are. Even and especially during a -a once-in-a-generation pandemic, Grace deserved compassion. She got cuffs. COVID-19 is killing people with no regard to ideology, race, or class, We also know that detention centers are virus hotspots. And sentencing this girl to detention for failing to do homework isn't upholding public safety. It's a potential death sentence. Not doing homework has never been a capital offense. This is the school to prison pipeline dressed up as tough love. Grace deserves better during this time. And all time. But it won't get better until we demand better. The passing of John Lewis, who was the last surviving speaker of the March on Washington, is a stark reminder of the cruelty of the life cycle. We're losing a generation of Americans responsible for so many of the freedoms my peers and I have sometimes taken for granted. And in the last month, we lost John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, and Emma Sanders, an original member of the Mississippi Freedom Party. As our elders take their well-deserved rests, After a job well done, a baton is passed. The race for liberation is a relay. Struggle is our inheritance. We run knowing that the race may not be won in our lifetime, but we run so that the graces and the miracle boys of the world won't have to fight identical fights 20 or 30 years from now. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you all next week.
4: Bye.
0: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. And here's my conversation with Elise Buick, who runs United Way of L.A. I was fascinated to learn about all the work that's happening, especially with regard to homelessness. We have a lot more work to do, y'all. Elise, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, I'm interested to have this conversation because there's so much that I don't know. And uh, you are the president and CEO of the United Way of Greater L.A. Can you talk about... How did you find your way to this role? And then what is Greater Los Angeles? Is that L.A. City? I don't know. For those of us who do not live in California or have not lived in California, what is that geographically?
6: Greater L.A. refers to L.A. County, and that makes up 88 cities. So while there's a lot of focus on the city of Los Angeles, which is an important and big city within the county, Uh, As we look at issues, we often are dealing with all 88 cities, Long Beach, Santa Monica, Pasadena. So it does make some of our work challenging. Um, And, you know, the county of L.A.'s population is 10 million people. So we're bigger than probably 42 states, I think it is. So anything we look at, DeRay, we have to look at through the lens of scale. Got it.
0: And how did you get to the United Way?
6: Well, I'm originally from Atlanta, and I was in the private sector, and my background was in marketing, and I transferred to Los Angeles with a job, uh, was with a medical software company. And one day I woke up, and I just said, you know, I don't care if I sell another computer system, and I joined the United Way 26 years ago, which is going to date me, um, as the head of marketing, and I just fell in love with the organization, and I got to know the community, and then in 2005, the CEO role opened up, and I had very mixed emotions because I was always the kind of behind-the-scenes person, but I said I've put 10 years of my heart and soul into this place, and I think I have a vision for what it could be, so I became the first female CEO of the United Way of Greater LA in 2005.
0: There we go. And can you talk about some of the work that the United Way does? I want to talk about uh, some of the homelessness work that you do, but yep. but w- what else is going on?
6: This United Way, we will celebrate our 100-year um, anniversary in 2022. Uh, United Way is a global network. We have United Ways all across the globe now, which is exciting. I've actually visited with the United Way of Korea and the United Way of Mumbai. But it's very locally based. But I would say our DNA in the past was we probably know us for these thermometers, and we raise a lot of money, and we give it out to a network of nonprofits. And, you know, when I became CEO in 2005, we just realized we had to do more, that the community needed us. Uh, we actually did a report called A Tale of Two Cities that really showed that income inequality in this region we are home to a lot of wealthy people that half of our population is working poor or below. And so we really, we named a new plan called Pathways Out of Poverty. Believe it or not, in 2007, us using the word poverty was considered controversial. <laughs> And I think the biggest shift for this United Way was we realized if we were going to have an impact, we would have to move into policy and advocacy, that we would have to take positions on things and really advocate for change and advocate for different levels of investment. And so that was pretty controversial at the time. United Ways were always known for being neutral. And so, you know, we began to really look at big issues. And so our three areas we work on in the community are economic mobility, education, and housing. But I would say our deepest work is in um, homelessness. And um, we've been really hardcore in that for the past decade because we are the homeless capital of the nation, unfortunately.
0: Can you give us some context about what you mean when you say the homeless capital of the nation? What does that mean?
6: Uh, we do an annual homeless count, and uh, the count continues to go up. And this year, it uh, homelessness went up uh, almost 13%. So we have more than 66,000 people who are experiencing homelessness in LA County. And, you know, that's just unacceptable.
0: And can you, how do you define homelessness? Is it, I've always been curious, it, like, how do we define it? Is it people who have transitory housing and people who have no housing? Is it people in between housing? Like, what is the, when we say the homelessness count, like, what does that actually mean?
6: Yes, I mean, it's a great question. It's people who've experienced homelessness during the course of the year. And so, to your point, um, and in that number, just to give you to kind of break it down, what we see is about 75% of that population are people who are in and out of homelessness due to economic reasons. And, you know, I, I think we find most people are surprised when they hear that. But that's really the state of what working families are dealing with right now. They're spending way too much of their income on housing, and that's gotten really worse in greater Los Angeles. But we're seeing it all across the country. We know that You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons around that. And then we have 25% that are more of what you might think of as people that are chronically homeless. Chronic is described as you're homeless for a year or more, and you have some type of other condition. And so, those are our most vulnerable people on the streets. You know, many of them have mental health issues. They may be using drug or alcohol to cope with that or to cope with trauma. They often have health issues. So it breaks down about seventy five percent economic twenty five percent chronic
0: there we go and, and and do we know anything about the racial demographics or no?
6: We do, and this clearly is a is a much bigger discussion and I think in this moment it gives us an opportunity. We have this myth of personal responsibility and choice. And we know that people don't choose to be homeless. Um and and as you break it down by race, um, you know, it tells a different story. So in LA County, which is different than a lot of regions, eight percent of our countywide population is black, but thirty-four percent of people experiencing homelessness are black and fifty percent fifty-six percent of families are black. You know, I would say in the past, people look at the demographics, they may hear those stats, but I don't think that we have taken the appropriate steps to deal with it and to name it for what it is, which is more around structural racism. And I think that's the moment that this opportunity gives us. And you're right, it is wow. Uh, It really shows you the manifestation of how broken our systems are, that we have such a disproportionate representation of people on the streets.
0: Got it. Wow, that is... That is so disparate. So what can we do about it?
6: We have underinvested in this issue for decades, and we're paying the price. Um, Our systems are not aligned. Our jails are now taking care of most of our mentally ill folks in our communities. This conversation that we're having in America right now about a reprioritization of budgets that you know gets articulated through a defund the police mantra, I mean, I absolutely think it is the right conversation we should be having because we know what works. I mean, in L.A., I have to say, so the United Way back in 2016, we led two efforts with uh, different community partners and electeds. We know that when we house people and we give them services, they can thrive, they come in off the streets, they turn their lives around, they get the treatment they need. We just don't have the funding to do it. And so in LA County, I'm really proud to say that we ran two measures, uh, one in the city of Los Angeles called Measure Triple H, which was a $1.5 billion bond that allowed us to build 10,000 units of desperately needed housing. And in the county, six months later, the voters passed Measure H, which is $3.5 billion for services. So people get this and voters get it, but I would say this to you, we can't just do it at the local level. You really have to have alignment of city, county, state, and feds. And I would say to you, the feds have really walked away from their investment in housing and in helping people. They've decreased Uh, rental subsidies by half over the past couple decades. So this is the moment for all of us to really weigh in on where we want to see our public dollars go and how we want to support people with housing and services and not jails and incarceration. And I think that's the conversation that is being had across America right now that's encouraging to me.
0: Now I've always wanted to know who's against addressing the homelessness crisis. Is there like a lobby you're up against? Like what's the is it or is it people say there's no money? I don't know. What 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 barriers do you run into?
6: While we see elected officials who may care about this issue, people that experience homelessness are not a big voting block, so this is an issue that always goes to the bottom of the list. And so you really do need organizations to lift up that this has to be an important issue. Even after we got the money to help fund this housing, we were running up against neighborhood fights. And um, we call it NIMBYs. We call it not in my backyard people. So people who are like, yeah, I want those folks off the streets, and you know, I will even raise my taxes to help pay for housing, but I don't want it in my neighborhood. And we launched two years ago an effort called Everyone In, where thanks to the generosity of a donor, we have community organizers that are going out into neighborhoods to really educate people that we actually want this housing in our neighborhoods. It's a good thing for us. And these are our neighbors, and they deserve to live in neighborhoods all throughout this county. You know, I did hear your podcast where you were talking about just the racism and mortgage property taxes. I think that we're just really starting to see that what that is code for of not wanting that type of housing in neighborhoods and, you know, that NIMBYism is more racism and that has to be called out. And I would say there's a lot of housing policy that has just gotten embedded over time that really makes us being able to build housing in neighborhoods all throughout America hard. There's a lot of zoning laws across America that restrict the development of apartments. You know, most people now are renters and live in apartments. Why would we keep multifamily housing out? You know, this battle between single-family housing and multifamily housing. This whole intersection, I would say to you, of housing policy, of racism, of over-policing and incarceration, I mean that perfect storm it really shows up in how people end up on the streets for a very long time
0: what do you do to the nimby conversation like how do you navigate that is there you know i'm sure there are people listening who have been around people who who fall into that camp how do you respond to that
6: it's tough because some of them are pretty sophisticated i'm not going to lie to you especially in the more affluent liberal neighborhoods like where we've had some of our hardest fights is Venice, California, which you know has always been a stalwart of liberalism um and so when people are well funded, they slap lawsuits on us uh you know so it it is not for the faint of heart, but i would just I would say to you, I think there's a lot of myths and fear around people that experience homelessness, and we try to break those down uh we do a series called Stories from the Front Line," and we bring people who are housed now to tell their stories, and they're very powerful. You know, it's people who've been on the streets for decades and how they got housing and how it turned their lives around. And I think when people hear those stories and meet those people, you know, what we want to convey to them is, yes, I would like to have that person as my neighbor. So we just try to scale that. And then I got to tell you, it is good old organizing and really fighting the NIMBY forces because housing is done at the local level. And so we know there's very well-organized homeowner associations and neighborhood groups. And so the Everyone In campaign is really organizing people who are saying, yes, we want this housing in our neighborhood. Uh, We find that people do want it, but they're just not as organized as the opposition. And so that's what we're striving to do right now um, in neighborhoods all throughout L.A. County.
0: Got it. That that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to know, too, and you, you sort of touched on this a little bit. Uh, what do we do about the rent crisis that's happening or about the mortgage crisis? Like the fact that COVID people are not working as much, people still have bills to pay. Do you anticipate we're going to see an uptick in homelessness? What's going to be the cost of the housing crisis in a moment like this?
6: You know, every time the first of the month comes around, we're just so... Worried. I mean, you know, L.A. and the governor have done a decent job on putting a moratorium on evictions, and people are getting unemployment, and that's allowing them to stay. But, you know, to your point, I do think we're going to see uh, levels of homelessness rise in this pandemic and with this housing crisis that we're seeing, and that is all across America. That's just not in a Los Angeles. And I think what makes me nervous is We know the feds could step in, but we just have a lot of concern that this administration will not do that. We've got to really change how we think about housing and rental assistance and even just the changing nature of where our policy goes. You know, there's just too much federal funding right now that's on the wrong end of the spectrum. Um, A lot of our tax incentives and other things are really geared to homeowners, and that leaves behind a lot of people who rent. And, you know, we know that right now we've got three and four eligible low-income renter households. They don't receive uh, federal renter assistance. They're eligible, but we don't have enough funding in that bucket. So, you know, unfortunately, I think to get to the scale that we need Um, we're going to have to see an investment by the feds. And we know it works. Um, Under the Obama administration, they really put a focus on veteran homelessness. They put a lot of what we call housing vouchers for veterans on the streets. And we were able to decrease veteran homelessness. So I think it's a combination of our priorities at the federal level of how we're assisting it, the policies that we change, and then what we can do at the local level to change zoning that makes multifamily housing more accessible. Uh, In L.A. County, we just did a report with McKinsey, we're half a million units short of affordable housing. Whoa. I (laughs) know, big numbers. What we are seeing in L.A. and across the nation is we're building at the high end, but we're not building at the affordable end, and we have to, and the only way you can do that is with government subsidy to make the numbers work.
0: Got it, that's rough. I know that the United Way, in some ways, was was seen as a charity before and not as mission-driven. It doesn't seem like that's the case and that that's changed. Is that true?
6: It is true. I mean, you know, the thing that's great about the United Way is we are all very local and autonomous. But you're starting to see those changes happen across the United Way network it's the right thing to do. I mean, if if we're going to truly have impact in our communities, we have to be more of a social change organization.
0: Got it. Uh, what are some of the other issues that the United Way of LA is focusing on as it continues to do work in community?
6: We always look at our work through the lens of equity. Another big area that we look at is education. We've looked at it for a very long time. Um, LA Unified School District has 600,000 kids, the majority of whom are on free and reduced lunch and are black and brown students. And so, you know, we really have to hold the district accountable to making sure that our students are getting a quality education. And I'll tell you in the context of this pandemic, Um, and LA Unified just decided to go to all virtual learning for the upcoming school year, we know a lot of our students are getting left behind. And that manifests in two ways. It manifests in terms of how much access they have to technology and Internet and computers. It shows up with um, crowded housing environments that are not conducive to learning, working parents that can't help. Uh, their kids because they're working. And then it also uh, shows up in making sure that there's a standard of teaching time that's happening with the students. And so, you know, when we went into the pandemic, there was more of a focus on making sure that students have meals and making sure they were safe. And those things are important, but we want to make sure that they are not slipping behind in terms of learning. So I definitely know that's going to be um, a big area of focus for us in this upcoming year.
0: There we go. And you touched upon this a little bit, but how have you seen the issue of homelessness addressed differently by the administration has it has it been a severe rollback under Trump or has it just been no action under Trump or is it has he just like not really paid attention to it at all and we're sort of thankful that he's not paying attention to it
6: <laughs> I think they just haven't paid attention to it but they are starting to put in place some policies and roll back some things that are detrimental to moving it forward I mean you know, the biggest things that we need right now are more housing vouchers, more Section 8 assistance. Right now, federal rental assistance makes housing affordable for almost 10 million people. Four million of those are children. And as we were talking about, I mean, you absolutely have to have federal assistance to help make the numbers work in terms of ensuring that people have access to housing. We get better outcomes in our communities when people are housed. Um, I do think that this administration, there's a little bit of we blame the person. (laughs) Um, And what we experience in L.A. County is that our families are... They're working, but they're spending way too much, a high percentage of their income on housing, and it's not sustainable. And I personally believe we have to look at housing as an entitlement and as a right. Um, And I think we have to figure out how we can help families do that. But that will be a substantial overhaul of policies and incentives and um, investment that we need to make at the federal level to really augment what you're starting to see happen at the local and state level.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. and We can't wait to have you back.
6: Well, thank you, DeRay, for having me. Um, and thanks for what you're doing. It's really important getting the word out. So we, we're just honored to be a part of your uh, podcast.
0: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.